Today we're going to be picking back up in Revelation chapter 5. Uh, it's been a while. I'm probably a little rusty. I might squeak a little bit uh, <laughs> as we get through this. But I'm really excited for today's message. Uh, if you're listening online, I encourage you to go to the website resurrectionmontana.org. Go to the resources page. And uh, if it's within a week, there will be songs listed uh, for worship. Um, that really went well uh, with today's uh, message. Uh, let me actually read them in case you're listening later. It's unto the Lamb, faith and wonder, and raise a hallelujah. I feel like th these songs we listened to recently and they were perfect for uh, where we're at in Scripture today. But the title of the message is A Scroll Written and Sealed. A Scroll Written and Sealed. You might give it a subtitle or maybe even replace it with a better title of Who is Worthy? Who is Worthy? But a scroll written and sealed. This is Revelation 5. If we remember all the way back to a couple months ago when we were last together, well, you, we were together, but <laughs> where we last had a Sunday service, we know that John, the Apostle John, was in the Isle of Patmos. Uh, Jesus revealed to him his glory. There are seven churches, lampstands, and stars, the seven spirits of God. You know that number seven is a number of perfection and completion. We saw the 12 tribes of Israel, that Israel is God's people and nation, that Jesus is their king, but the church is God's body, is Jesus' body. And that Jesus, as the church, is our head, meaning he's the one who's going to make the decisions for us, tell us where to go, what to do. We're just the hands and the feet, and we just do whatever without even thinking about it. With that, these two peoples in Jesus are grafted together, the Jew and the Gentile grafted together. We read the seven letters to the seven churches, uh, to Ephesus. We know that as them as the loveless church. Smyrna, the persecuted church. These, again, these were not only seven churches in the day and age of John, but uh, I believe also seven churches throughout the history from the cross until the rapture. But that also these, I think, can be embodied in almost like the types of soil that Jesus spoke about for people's hearts, that these are a type of church that you and I could belong to today. I mean, we even in the state, if we stretch this interpretation a little bit, hopefully not too far that breaks, to where you and I are at in our church. We may belong to a, love, a loving church, but perhaps we're corrupt, or perhaps we're compromising, or perhaps we are the only one with love in the middle of a church that is dead. But we also saw the Pergamos, the compromising church, Thyatira, the corrupt church, Sardis, the dead church. I don't know how a church can be dead. Uh, I guess church in name only. Philadelphia, the faithful church. And Laodicea, the church age, which I believe we're, if not in, we're entering in, the lukewarm church. That Jesus said, I'd spit you out. I'd rather you be completely cold and hate me or completely on fire and love me. But the way you are now, bleh. It's nauseating. I want nothing to do with you in this state. But last time we talked about Matthew 24. This was the beginning of March. It's now the end of June. We talked about birth pangs and so many things happening in history. And man, in these past three and a half months, has it not been exponential, the things that have changed alone in just our country? And I know America isn't the whole world and we can't say that just because America is falling apart and America is dying and being ripped apart, 
that the end of the world is happening, but it sure feels like it. And you know what? I think that perhaps as America being and used to be a Christian nation, a nation based on Christian principles, and we see we want to rip up and tear everything up, that perhaps it is a sign of the end because there's not a nation anymore that is beholden to God like ours was. And we see God's hand, I believe, is off of our country now. I believe we fully rejected him. The fabric of our society on every level is being ripped apart and replaced violently. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And this is nothing that has changed in three months. It's just exponentially gotten worse in the past three months than it has in the past 30 years, 40, 50 years. Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If you and I, as the righteous, if they destroy the very basement, the very foundation, the very pillars of our society, what can we do for it? We can't. It is beyond saving at that point. In Mark 3.24, Jesus says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And our nation has been polarized and polarized and polarized. And on the trajectory we're on, at the burn rate that we're going through right now, this summer is going to be a hot one. And it could be worse. I pray it doesn't, but I believe we literally have a front row seat on our couches in front of uh, all sorts of media. But this is the end of America, and we're right at the end, right before the tribulation. And that could happen anytime. The world is ripe for a leader to come on the scene and claim they know everything. And bring some sort of unity but that unity is going to mean ostracizing and casting out and even murdering those who disagree and the worst part is twofold for me that even if we as a country as a church fully repent I, I don't know that that's going to change anything other than our spiritual state I believe physically We've reached the point of no return. That consequence at some point comes. We look at the scripture, we look at the nation of Israel, what happened with them, and how they would go from God and come back to God, go from God and come back to God. And even if they repented, their enemies were still on the way to come and conquer them. And God would send them into exile for 70 years with a promise that they could be restored. But they still had to go into that captivity. And I believe the time is upon us uh, nationally. Again, the world is setting the stage for this one world leader to unite us and bring sense to the madness. But know you, if you're not a believer and you're around for that, he's an imposter. He's showing up right before, seven years before, the real king is coming back. He's an imposter. Don't believe him. And I like how the complete Jewish Bible translates uh, Jesus' words in Mark 13. He says to everybody, those his disciples to believers but to everybody stay alert and in this time and day and age stay alert i think is the word to follow that this is it the time before the end and i could go on and on and i would love to but i'd rather go do what we're supposed to do today and that's focus on revelation chapter five lord this morning we pray that in your word you would reveal to us like uh, Elisha prayed for a servant to open his eyes like that we might see the spiritual world and what's really going on spiritually around us. There's so many things physically going on and going wrong around us that the world can't make sense of us. The flesh can't understand the things of the Spirit. But God, as believers who have your Holy Spirit, give us understanding. Show us 
why these things on earth are happening because of spiritual things. It's a spiritual issue. Every issue that we have in this world today is a spiritual problem, a spiritual sickness that's manifesting in other ways. So God, forgive us, draw us close, make us one with you, and let us be willing to stand up for what's right in these evil days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But we know that John is actually in heaven. He was praying in the Isle of Patmos. Jesus shows up and calls him up to heaven and says, Come up here that you might see the things that are about to take place. That John is going to have this heavenly perspective. And as we read through Revelation, we're going to get a heavenly perspective on things that have happened and will happen. Uh, but he's before the throne of God, the 24 elders, the apostles, the tribes. That's the 24 elders, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. He's before the angels in heaven. And everyone is worshiping God. That's chapter 4. First three chapters of the churches, the message, chapter 4, he's in heaven. He's being shown the things which must take place. These things must. There's no way for these things not to happen. God is a righteous God. The world is wicked. God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, and we fully rejected him. So all that's left for us, if we've rejected mercy, we've rejected grace, we've rejected forgiveness, what's left? There's only one thing left, and that's judgment. And we've allowed it to come upon ourselves. Just like I believe in America, we've allowed this judgment, this abandonment judgment to come on us because it's what we chose. It's not what God wants for us, but it's what God allows for us. And I think in his hope, in his last-ditch effort, that we might come to know him. But they're kicking off for us. I believe they've been going on for 2,000 years at different levels. And again, a reminder that heaven is the real reality. We live in a world we see, we taste, we touch, we feel. But this isn't it. This isn't reality, guys. Our reality, and I don't mean again to downplay it, as I said before, this reality has eternal consequences. It's important. It's full of life. The things we do here matter in this life and the next. But remember that this is a shadow of the realest reality. Eternity. Heaven. And again, even more so, it is not our destiny. We are not going to spend eternity in the dirt and the ground. Our spirit will live on in heaven or in hell. And I was talking with my dad about daily application. And uh, we were talking about skipping books like these as a tragic mistake. It's easy to just want to read the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs. I love the New Testament. I love Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, they're a staple of my devotional life since I got saved. But these books such as Revelation or Genesis or other things that we skip because they seem too hard or too mystical or for whatever, you know, maybe the people that read them are crazy. Well, call me crazy. They almost have more daily application and practical insight than the rest of the scripture. I know Proverbs is very practical. But why? Because they offer, I believe, the clearest picture of what is to come of what exactly we've been saved from, and what exactly our sin deserves, and where we are headed, one way or the other. It gives you that outlook. I was saying to my dad the other day, I'm like, man, I was really discouraged about something. And then uh, I was just reminded of Revelation and of heaven and how that's real, and that's my destiny, and that's where I'm going to spend all my time. And all of a sudden, I wasn't discouraged anymore. I had the practical life to say that, you know what? All these things could go wrong. I may not be happy with this or that. 
this might be tough or a difficulty. And again, all these things are whining and crying baby issues compared to some issues that other people have. Man, when I thought of heaven, and I, all of a sudden my soul was transported there. You know, we love to be escapists as people. We love to go on vacation. We love to go to the movies and just escape for a while, read a book. People live action role play and pretend they're doing something else. And I believe that's half of what they're doing in Seattle is live action role playing. So they don't understand the reality of it. We love to escape as a people because life is hard and that's okay. It's good to have a day of rest. It's good to get away. It's, it's good to, to not get so caught up in the things uh, that are bothering you and escape for a little while. But I think on the other side of society, we get into things like drugs and relationships and all sorts of things to find an escape that destroys us. And I feel like the things in society that we're escaping to destroy us. But as believers, God intended us to escape from this world. He's going to rapture us, the ultimate escape, the ultimate snatching away from things of this world, that we are to put our spirits and our inheritance and our treasure where? In heaven. That's escape. You want to be an escapist? Great. Escape to heaven. And Revelation gives us that perspective, that heavenly perspective. And we're going to get that heavenly perspective today and for the rest of our time in Revelation as far as we can get through. Um, But know this. You're going to want to escape. It's only going to get worse. These changes that people want are not going to make things better. It may seem better, but it's going to be worse. There's always a trade-off. There's always a sacrifice. I'm going to read. uh, We'll go over today. I don't don't know, but I'm just got to make up for lost time. (laughs) But I'm going to read Mark 13, 3 through 13, 37 from the Complete Jewish Bible. I just like the way this one reads. He says, And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, that's Jesus, saying uh, to Kepha, Yaakov, Yohanan, and Andrew. And they asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what sign will show uh, when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Yeshua began speaking to them, Watch out. Don't let anyone fool you. Are people not being fooled left and right today? And so it's going to get even worse. And verse 6 says, Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will fool many people. When you hear the noise of wars nearby and the news of wars far off, don't become frightened. Such things must happen, but the end is yet to come. For peoples will fight each other, nations will fight each other, there will be earthquakes in various places. I don't know if you guys felt the earthquake we had a couple months ago. But there will be famines. This is but the beginning of birth pains. It's happening fast now. There's going to be a baby any moment, I believe, with all the birth pains we're having. But you, Jesus says, watch yourselves. They will hand you over to the local Sanhedrins. You will be beaten up in the synagogues. In the synagogues, in the places that are supposed to be godly, real believers are going to be beaten up. And on my account, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Know this, believer, when we get arrested, it's to be a witness for them. It's not, woe is me, it's, woe is you. Oh, you who judge me, may I share the gospel with you. May you fall in love with God. Verse 10, indeed, the good news is to be proclaimed, first of all, to the Goyim, the Gentiles. Now when they arrest you and bring you to trial, don't worry beforehand about what you're to say. Rather, say whatever is given to you when the time comes, for it will not just be you speaking, but the helper uh, will come to you. Brother will betray brother to death, the father is child. Children will turn against their parents and have them put to death doesn't seem that very far-fetched anymore in our country, does it? 
and everyone will hate you because of me. But whoever holds out until the end will be delivered. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, stay alert. Stay alert. Let's pick up Revelation chapter 5. We'll read the first seven verses together. It says, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And John says, So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. You see here that this right hand, this right hand is not only really the right hand, but it's a symbol of power and authority. Jesus said to sit in my right hand, right? Uh, we see that in scripture that, you know, that was a symbol of power. And he held this scroll. He held it. Only one could hold it. Only one had the authority to have possession of this scroll. And it was him who sat on the throne. I believe the father. Chapter 4, if, again, if you look at it in your own time, we get a description of what this throne looked like and what this being uh, was emanating. But this scroll, uh, if you think about a scroll, it's, uh, you know, from what I understand, it was two rolls, and in this day and age, it was rolled out horizontally, um, and you would kind of scroll through the two. Uh, it was written on, normally written not only on one side, and yet this scroll was filled front and back. If you remember, uh, I don't know if you did it as a kid, but as a kid, sometimes you'd try and write really small and fit two lines of text and one line on the notepad or even on the college ruled. I always like the college rule because it was smaller. Uh, but you write, and sometimes you'd have to write in the margins if you ran out of paper. But this scroll was filled. It had everything written on it that needed to be written. This scroll did not leave anything out. It didn't miss a detail. It didn't miss a consequence. And it provided all of the reasons on one side and on the other, front and back. And usually you'd seal a letter with a scroll or one seal. Uh, sometimes, you know, you go to like an envelope when you send a, a letter, but the edges are a little lifted up, so you put some tape on it. But this scroll was sealed. It was licked. It was taped. It was duct taped. It was wrapped in a box and, and sealed again with more tape. It was sealed seven times. And remember the seven spirits of God, seven churches, this number of perfection and completion. This, this scroll was sealed so well, no one was going to get into it. That the things contained inside were perfect. The seals were perfect. Everything about this was just. We cry out for justice in this world, but I don't think we understand what true justice is. Because what is in this scroll is of utmost importance it's not to be opened for any reason or by just any person 
until the very right moment by the very right person. You couldn't just open this up because you wanted to. You know, my family loves me so much they wanted me to open up the Father's Day gifts and things they made for me yesterday. But I said, it's not Father's Day. Let's do it tomorrow. I'll keep it special. And I, I appreciate it. It meant a lot to me. But I said, let's save it for the right day. And somebody else could open them. They're not, I'm sure it's not sealed that good. I'm sure if you just looked around the house, you could have found them. But they're meant to be opened by me and just me and only me because they're sealed by my kids with the love of my kids and my wife. They wouldn't mean the same thing if anyone else opened it. And so what happens? A strong angel proclaims something. A strong angel. And when you think of an angel, what do you think of? Is it just a dainty choir singer in a robe? An old man who's got his choir book out? That's fantastic. Singing. La, 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 la. Is that what you think of? Is it a chubby little baby with wings and a bow and arrow? My mom used to have all these little angel statues. Uh, I'll refrain from calling them uh, idols, but she had little angels all over her house all the time. Um, but sorry to burst your bubble, that second angel picture is one of Greco-Roman mythology. It's not biblical at all. It's Cupid. And even the first one of that person in a robe, all dainty and singing, or a female even, is even an artist's interpretation. Because there's nothing dainty about the worship that's going on in heaven. The worship that's in heaven is powerful. It's honest. It's not rote. And maybe there's some dainty singers in there from all the people that we see. But it's different. And this angel is described as a strong angel, a mighty angel, a body and mind. This word strong sustains the attacks of the enemy. It can mean violent. This is the angel. We're not told what class of angel this is. We're not, the word is just angelos messenger, right? So I guess he's a messenger angel. It doesn't say seraphim or cherubim or anything like that. But my guess, he's like one of the warriors, like Michael. Or maybe he's a messenger like Gabriel and he's just been bench pressing more than the other guys. But he is a strong angel. We're told in the scripture about angels who wiped out entire sets of troops without an issue, killed entire cities. And I'm not vouching for his podcast or the things he says, but occasionally I watch clips or whole podcasts of Joe Rogan. And you know that he's big into MMA and he's a pretty big dude. He's muscular, right? Uh, more so now than when, I guess when he was on that show, uh, Fear Factor. But he was interviewing this other guy I know of named Jocko Willink. And uh, Jocko Willink is a Navy SEAL. Uh, Jocko Willink is a big dude. Like, when you think of big dudes, you think of Joe Rogan. But I was watching this clip of him, and it's video of him, and they're talking. And this guy is just a strong dude, uh, intimidating dude. This is when you think of, you know, if I was the enemy, I would just surrender if I knew that this guy was coming after me. Um, even with his bare hands and I had a tank, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do it. But I'm watching the clip, and all of a sudden it cuts back to Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan looks absolutely puny next to this guy, Jocko Willink. And they're both big dudes, but Jocko just makes Joe look tiny. 
Uh, it's almost like those memes when you compare uh, Kevin Hart and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> it's just different. And that's how I picture this strong angel. You look at the angel, you're like, they're strong, and then you see this guy who's proclaiming, you're like, all right, no, this guy is a strong angel. Huge, warrior, intimidating. Let's think about this, guys. This is heaven. This is the spiritual world. This exists. This isn't made up. This isn't make-believe. This is real. I pray that God opens our eyes that we might see what others don't see. And the strong angel in heaven proclaims in a loud voice. He's like, hey guys, I got something to say. This is a strong angel proclaiming in a loud voice. The word megas, I believe where we get mega, like megaphone. He proclaims so loud that all of heaven, all of earth, and everything under the earth, there's a deep spiritual thing that we won't dig into today there, that they might hear the call to open this scroll. And he says, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? The strong angel couldn't do it. I think I would see a strong angel go, yeah, he could probably do it. Probably just two fingers, strip it. You know, It's not like opening a jar of pickles and sometimes you need help and you got to get your shirt on it. I think of my sister, uh, when we were kids, would put the lid on the soda bottle so tight. And I would try and open it, and my hand would get all cut up. No one else could open it. We would know if that bottle was closed by Heather, only Heather could open it. But with this scroll, it wasn't about that strength. It wasn't about strength. It was about worth. Who is worthy not strong enough, who is worthy to open the scroll, being worthy in their very being, that their very essence is worth. And out of all of creation, heavenly, fallen, and condemned, none of them could even look at the scroll. No one was worthy even to size up the scroll, to try and estimate what it would take to open it let alone all seven of those seals. Again, that number of perfection and completion. And what happens? What's John's response? He weeps much. That this disciple, this old man now, who used to be a young man, who put his head on Jesus at the Last Supper, he cries profusely, uncontrollably, sobbing. John had a big heart. And I believe part of it, you know, I don't know the answer for sure, but I believe that part of it was that his heart was to see all that heaven had, to know all that was written in heaven, to know the answers to things, to know and be known. And do we weep over what we don't or can't know yet spiritually? Do we desire, like John, to be heavenly minded, heavenly educated, heavenly experienced, that we would have that heavenly perspective? Do we weep over it when we don't understand why something is happening? Do we weep over our family, over our friends, over loved ones, over our enemies and their state? When you're delivered up, you're there to bring the gospel to the people you are delivered to. Not to get yourself out of jail, but to preach to them the gospel. Do we weep over the state of our country? Or are we so content to go on with our minds, our hearts, our spirits sealed when they should be loosed and open for all the world to read. But along with that, I, I believe it is even more than that. 
somehow that this was something that had to be spiritually completed. It wasn't done. It was a spiritual task that needed a taskmaster. And there was no one who was worthy to do it. No one who could do it. And John wept to see it done. John wept to see God's will unfold on, in heaven and on earth. But I also get the sense that maybe, perhaps, John had forgotten or hadn't yet realized just how all-powerful Jesus was. He had been given this vision of him. He had served God his whole life. He had led churches. He had written epistles. He knew about the love of God. And he loved Jesus. But perhaps somehow, just like the rest of us, he wasn't yet completed. He wasn't yet perfected. And he was short-sighted just a bit. He had forgotten, like perhaps the disciples did, that somehow he had forgotten. Or maybe he just wasn't aware. I know there's no weeping in heaven, so the angels stop him. But like you and I, he still wasn't perfect. Let's not be short-sighted. Let's not weep for the wrong reasons here on earth. Let's weep for the right reasons, right? Even Jesus wept. And one of the elders, I love this, John is weeping, emotionally distraught over what's happening. I think this one of the elders leaned over and said, John, don't weep. There's hope. Don't you remember the scriptures, the prophecies, who Jesus really is? John, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's strong. He's a warrior. He's the root of David. He's a king after God's own heart on the eternal throne. Jesus has prevailed, John. The victory of that cross and the resurrection proves, John, that Jesus is worthy. He's able. And he's the only one. Don't worry. No one else can answer the call. But we've got someone who can answer the call. It's not Ghostbusters. It's not Batman. It's Jesus. He's worthy to open the scroll, to look at it, to read it, to loose all seven of its seals and command it to happen, to execute it, to execute God's will in heaven and on earth. And John looked at this moment in the middle of the throne, you know, picture the throne there in the middle and you've got the four seraphim around it and the elders around that and the angels around that. That's just how I'm picturing it. You know, maybe it's not a circle in heaven. I don't know. Um, but in the midst of the throne, and I've seen pictures of a lamb on the, on the lap of the person, and I don't necessarily see it that way. I think in some spiritual way, it's almost like a hologram kind of coming out of the throne. It just manifests out of the throne. In the midst of the throne, um, we see this lamb. It says, a lamb slain, as slain. But this lamb, maybe it's bloody. Maybe it's cut up. Maybe its wool is all torn and tattered. But it's a lamb that was slain. And this lamb isn't like any lamb that you and I might have. The 4-H might get a little upset if your lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. But again, this is per perfect picture of the Spirit of God in this lamb. It's a spiritual manifestation of Jesus' role, of the embodiment of Jesus' worth, that he was slain for us, innocent and yet killed. Perfect and slain, fully God fully endowed with God's Spirit and sent into all the earth to proclaim God's glory and God's forgiveness. And he came, this Lamb Jesus. This Lamb took the scroll. There was no contest. There was no struggle. No angel stopped him. This, out of the right hand of the one on the throne, freely gave to this Lamb 
the scroll. And this angel, this strong angel, had been proclaiming, yet all of heaven knew who was worthy. The elders leaned over and said, John, everyone knew who was worthy. So why was this angel proclaiming it? Why didn't the lamb just come out and get it? I believe it was a call to worship. A call for all of creation. That this call to worship, again, was a call to see Jesus for who he really is. All powerful, all perfect, innocent, and slain. That this angel was proclaiming it, that the whole world would know that there's only one. And his name is Jesus. And this is the life you and I as Christians are to proclaim strongly. If you're not a Christian, this is your calling in life. To get saved and be a part of God's kingdom. Be his child. Be one who naturally proclaims him. We're not to claim our own life. We're not to proclaim an earthly cause as our main cause in life. Yes, we're to speak up to those who can't speak for themselves. But the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the eternal king, the only worthy one, is the only one worthy to be proclaimed at all by us. If you're going to proclaim one thing in life, it's not animal rights. It's the rights of the lamb who was slain. It's no one and nothing else. That's our mission in life, believer. Not politics, not power, but the gospel. That Jesus is God and that he loves us, that he died on the cross for us, but most of all, that he is worthy of all worship because of who he is. We're not to sit around weeping all the time as if we have no hope, as if God's plan can never be completed now. We're to remember, he's the root of David. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He wanted the cross. Let's get up, believer. Let's march forward in these last days. Let's go on. Let's proclaim with a loud voice. Let's read the last uh, half of this chapter. Verse 8 says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I, John, looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them that was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. You know, that when the Lamb takes this scroll, this kicks off a new round of worship in heaven. The band looks at each other, they switch a new tune, they change an instrument, and they sing a new song. The lyrics all point to what exactly is happening at this moment in eternity. 
the elders, the angels, everyone has harps, they have musical instruments, they have bowls of incense. And what's interesting about these bowls of incense is that they are the prayers of believers. And isn't that something? To know that our prayers are saved in heaven. They are used in worship. That our prayers are a precious heavenly commodity. Sweet smelling. Used in the very worship of Jesus. And not only does God hear them, but he loves their smell. He loves their aroma. And they fill heaven. That when they worship God, when he does this most important thing in heaven, I'm taking these scrolls, being the only one worthy, that what's offered up? Our prayers. Our prayers. And do our prayers smell sweet to God? Do they smell like an old basement or a radish? Or are they incense to God? Are they a fragrance? Are they more than just cheap potpourri? Are they sweet flowers from a field? Are they the smell of a lot of meat on a fire being sacrificed? It smells delicious. Are they incense to God? Or are they incensing to all of heaven? What is your prayer's focus? What is the most important thing you're concerned about when you and I pray? That kind of determines how they smell. I think they smell good to God. If we, even if we're praying about the wrong thing, I think somehow God gets a joy out of it and He'll lead us to the right things to pray for. But it says that it's a new song. And having been a part of a worship team in the past and putting lyrics up and always getting new songs and seeing uh, the band or people in the audience, you know, I hate saying the audience, people in church worship and not know the right lyrics to the song. But they knew this new song. They knew the lyrics. They didn't struggle. They didn't stumble. They didn't miss a beat. They said, you are worthy with a loud voice. Heaven doesn't whisper. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. I can't wait to hear what this song actually sounds like. Maybe someone's put it to music, but I'm sure even the best musician is, would pale in comparison to the way this sounds in heaven. You know, sometimes we sing songs that are nice, that they have worth and value for worship, but they're not so laser-focused. I think other songs that we sing sometimes are so clear, so focused on the truth, and Jesus, that there's no mistake about what we're involved in. There's no mistake that we are worshiping the King of kings and Lord of lords and who he is. And when we worship, we're either spiritually in heaven or not. And we should sing the songs we sing with our heart towards God. Don't let the lyrics just be words. Let them be shouted from your heart, even if your mouth is just whispering. It's possible. Because God is worthy. If all of heaven shouts, we should shout once in a while too. doesn't mean we need to be out of control and wild, but it means that we need to be unhinged in our hearts and fully worshiping the Lamb who is worthy. That's what worship means. Worship. We are giving Him His worth. And every little bit and every more, every ounce is due. 
And because it's here, I didn't want to talk about it, but it's here. And it's something that's facing our society today. It's racism. Against any race. White, black, yellow, brown. And I know it's faux pas and not PC to say it, but I don't subscribe to races. I don't believe in races because we're all humanity. Yes, there are tribes, there are tongues, there are cultures, there are overall looks that might define one people group over another, sure. But there are so many colors and variations between them. You have children with parents who have totally different looks and the children are a whole gamut of in-between. Even my wife and I, we're both pretty pale, but we look at our skin tones. One's more yellow, one's more pink, and we see our kids and run a full gamut. Let alone if our colors were even farther apart. So how could you come up then with a stopping point? When does one stop being white and start being black? Or if you have more in there, what percentage does it take? We're all human. And even the difference between the darkest dark and the lightest light is a fraction of a percent difference genetically. We're the same people. I'm not saying we've had the same experience, the same struggles and that, but as people, as images of the living God, we are all one. We are humanity. Some politicians might take the very tiniest percentage and claim it from political game, but my point is that we are all made in God's image. We are all equal at the cross. Men, women, slave, master. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I'm not trying to belittle problems or struggles or things in society that are wrong. I'm not saying that they don't exist, but I'm not saying that, that, that the solution is being offered either. Because all colors, sizes, shapes, and peoples from all of history will be in heaven. It says it right there. They all share one culture, one voice, one message, one proclamation. A heavenly proclamation, free from sin and death and the grave, and united as one as the body of Jesus. They're not proclaiming their own tribes, their own nations, their own identity, their own culture. They're not saying anything that they want to say about themselves, they are ascribing all worth and the entire universe to Jesus. And we should too. Especially the church. Because when we proclaim Jesus, those walls come down. When we proclaim Jesus, those divisions go away and we become family. I felt at times in my life more close to people who look nothing like me, act nothing like me, have no life similarity to mine other than Jesus and then those who look exactly the same as me or even in my own family. Why? Because of the love of Jesus Christ. So do you want to be unified? Spread the gospel. Want to be free of being a racist in action or perhaps you don't think you're a racist but you are because you perceive others as being racist because of your own racism because everyone is capable. We all judge, do we not? If we would focus on Jesus and worry about his kingdom coming, these problems would grow pale in comparison. We would know the solution. The solution is Jesus. The solution is the Lamb. Do not live for this world or making gains in it. 
And what's interesting here is that we're told to be that we are kings and priests to our God, that we're made kings and priests. But a king couldn't be a priest, and a priest couldn't be a king in the scripture. Saul got in trouble for doing both. And again, I'm not going to get into this, this rabbit trail, which is a good one to get on, but I'm not going to get on it today. But we as believers are both. You are a king, and you are a priest in Jesus. Spiritually, you are a spiritual king. You rule and reign with him. Spiritually, you are a priest. You are someone who is an emissary for God, who is able to teach others about God because God lives in you. And believer, I encourage you, when you read the scriptures, come to it knowing that you are a king and a priest. And when those verses stick out, this is not for kings to do, this is not for priests to do, or this is what a priest is, and this is what a king is, I think it's going to change your perspective. I think when you have that heavenly perspective that you're a king and a priest, whether you're slave or free, a prince or a pauper on earth, you might change your behavior. Your attitude might change. Your entitlement desires might change when you realize you've already got everything inherited in Jesus. You might see something you never saw before. And there might be something in your life that needs to change. And there might be a blessing that you're just missing out on and you're going through life sad and weeping because you forget that Jesus is king and so are you with him, under him. But John looked again and there's literally millions of angels around the throne. And they're all saying with a loud voice in unison. Can you imagine the decibels there? Can you imagine that when John got back to earth, I bet his ears were ringing with those sounds for the rest of his life. He probably had tinnitus from it. Can you imagine? He's riding. His ears are ringing. It was so loud in heaven. You know, I shot uh, my wife's uh, carbine, and it's a short barrel, and I forgot I didn't have ear protection on. And it was so loud, my ears were ringing for days, for days. So I can't imagine what, uh, what John was feeling. But worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom. Can you imagine millions and millions of beings saying this? singing it, and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I love this part because it's at this point that every creature and all of creation begins to chime in. It's not just the millions in heaven, it's all of creation. The fish, the birds, the centipedes. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Creation knows the truth. Creation speaks to the truth, Romans says. That even if we don't know the scripture, we can look to creation and know, uh, know that God has done it and made it. It points to him. You know, it's been said that if you do something right, no one will notice that you've done anything at all. And I think that that really just speaks to our, our society. We think, man, that evolution happened. It just came to be by itself because God made it so right that we, we make an excuse and say that he had nothing to do with it at all. But he had everything to do with it. And all of creation knows that, understands that, and at the appointed time, worships God for it. But opening the scroll was a monumental occurrence, even in heaven. And it elicited only one response. They weren't commanded to worship. They had to worship when they saw this because of the truth, the reality of it. They could not help themselves but worship at this point. And it was massive and complete worship from all of creation. And as this happened, the four living creatures around the throne said, Amen. Let it be so. The Lamb is worthy 
this is the right time, this is the right person. Let him open the scrolls. And these scrolls are not blessings, they're judgments, as we'll begin to see in the next few chapters. And the elders continue to worship here as the next chapter is about to unfold. That these events begin to unfold on earth and in heaven. Their source is heaven. Their source is the scroll. These judgments to come are straight from the throne and the will of God. And he waits until the last minute to open them because it's the last thing he wants to happen on earth. He would rather people not have to go judgment. He put the judgment on the lamb who was slain. And yet because we've rejected him, there's only one choice, one option. And that's to continue and open the scroll. And this heavenly scroll will dictate everything that's going to happen on earth in the final judgment. But again, only one is worthy to open the scrolls, to read it, to unleash this judgment that's coming on the earth. There's only one. No, no, you and I, even if we had the button to all the nuclear weapons, would not ever in a million years be righteous or worthy enough to bring judgment on earth. But God is, and God may use a person on a button with a nuclear weapon as part of it, but it's the person who is judged for our sins, the Lamb, who is innocent, who is slain, and who rose again. And there's only one person in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, who that is, and that's Jesus. And when all of heaven offers the highest respect to God without question, without wavering, without prompting, you know what I think? Because it's true. We should too. We should too. So God, we want to worship you in spirit and truth. Help us be ready. Help us be watchful. Help us proclaim with our entire lives. Help us remember the scriptures, Holy Spirit, when we're down and out to not weep, but to put our faith and escape to heaven to that time coming. And we're thankful, God, that you are going to rapture us. The judgment is not for us, your church, your believers. God, we are taken out of the way when judgment comes that others who don't believe might be given that last chance to believe when everything else is stripped away, that they might see you for who you are, the creator of all heaven and earth, the only one who is worthy. So we worship you, Jesus, spirit and truth. Bless all those who hear. Bless all those around us in our lives. And God, uh, may you come soon and bring peace to earth because you're the only one who can bring peace. No one else will, no matter what they promise. You are peace. You're the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We love you, God. Be blessed this day. We look forward to this day in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. So may God bless you and keep you, and as may his face shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until the door.